0: You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com
1: for more information.
2: Welcome to M Squared TechCast. A live internet radio show offering the latest news and interviews with the people driving business, technology, and politics in Michigan. Now, your hosts, Matt Roush and Mike Brennan.
3: Well, uh, Mike Brennan, anyway, Matt is uh, at an LTU golf outing uh, shooting photographs for one of their publications. So you got me today, but uh, I'm sure we can get through this together. And we have calling in from somewhere. I'm not sure if she's in Dearborn or where, but uh, or Detroit. But Tamara Shoemaker, who's with the uh, Cyber Patriot Program. We've had her on the show many times before. How you doing today, Tamara?
4: I'm doing really good, Mike. How about yourself?
3: Can't complain. So uh, finally, have decent summer weather. So uh, one of the things we wanted to go over. Let's start with. Uh, let's just. I always assume that we have a lot of first-time guests and they may or may not know about who you are or what you do. So why don't we start with that and then we'll get into your questions.
4: Sure. So I'm Tamara Shoemaker and I'm the director of the Center for Cybersecurity and Intelligence Studies at the University of Detroit Mercy. And I'm also the founder of the MCC Coalition of Schools and Industry Partners that um, all get together around teaching cybersecurity and the Mission of our reaching back into the K-12 program helped us to found the um, Michigan Cyber Patriot program here in Michigan. And that's what I'm here to talk to you about.
3: All right. And so one uh, of the things that, well, like everybody else, how has COVID impacted the Cyber Patriot program?
4: So uh, not to brag, but I will. <laughs> so Cyber Patriot, um, one of the really cool things about Cyber Patriot is it's always been a virtual uh, competition. And so it's a virtual competition that happens monthly all through the uh, fall and winter season. And then uh, early spring, uh, they then compete nationally. And nationally is really the only time that you leave your home um, uh, or your you know, you, it's not virtual, wasn't virtual, at least up until now. And so the only thing that they had to adopt and change was our national pro- program. So uh, before you just logged in with your computers and did it virtually um, uh, on a weekend. Uh, during the school year. And then nationals, you physically went to Baltimore, but this year we actually, they had to alter it because of COVID. And so they had to have their spring um, actual championship virtual. And so they had to make some tweaks, Um, but it really wasn't a heavy lift for us because uh, we're used to doing it virtually. Right. So instead of the only, the only bad part was that teams weren't able to be in the same room with each other, Uh, you know, team members and be able to sort of talk that way. But one of the things I've discovered when when doing the uh, cyber camps this summer virtually is kids are very used to using these tools and being in a virtual experiencing and working together. I mean, this it wasn't very much different than what they do when they're doing gaming, and they're doing it in, in a group kind of setting, and they're on a team, um, which much like that for them. So So they've been sort of, you know, preparing for this for a while <laughs> whereas we as older workers and, and and folks are having to get used to this virtual kind of way of communicating and working together is
3: that the biggest lessons that you've learned so far uh from so it was one uh, of them
4: that, yeah so that was one of them and it was kind of a heartwarming one right to see how well they work together and how uh, you know some of the little glitches that would just um blow my mind like um you know if the if the zoom wasn't working exactly perfectly or somebody had an echo or something was going on normally as an organizer of one of those kind of things i would freak out and it would be upsetting that it wasn't totally perfectly professional but it was amazing how the kids and my instructors and all those folks just like oh no that's really easy you know uh Uh, Mrs. Shoemaker, you just have to do this or that. And just that goes away and it's fixed. Everyone was just sort of working together to make sure that the whole thing worked out really, really well over the summer. So that was kind of cool to see that. I am disappointed in, and I talked to this a little bit last time I was with you about the digital divide. Um, I'm still very upset about that. And I still want to work on that. So that's a really big thing across our state. There's a huge digital divide. And what I say by digital divide, so I'm not just talking to us, right, is that that, Folks that have the kind of personal PCs and laptops and things that they can use to get online and they have good internet connections and all that fast and all that kind of good stuff. And then the folks that don't um, and then are not used to using that kind of stuff on a daily basis. Um, and maybe they have one laptop in the house, but if mom's working from home and she's using that laptop, then you know the kids that are coming to my camp or playing cyber patriot wouldn't be able to participate because mom's got to earn money. So that kind of piece is is became very much more evident while ha- having to go virtual for both our our spring um, award ceremony that we did here in Michigan and when we did our camp. That became really obvious that there's a huge difference between the folks that have a lot of computers and, and, that, and the capabilities that come with high-speed internet and all that and that don't. And so we were sort of thinking that we would be able to get a bigger crowd when in actuality, it actually didn't. It actually limited what, who we could service, and it was very upsetting to me because I, I envisioned with all the help that I had that I was going to be able to just blast it out to the whole state. Um, but it didn't work out as the, perfectly, and so I was a little frustrated with that.
3: So having those computer labs at the various schools makes a big difference. Then,
4: sure, for those folks that can't have them, that don't can't afford to have that in their own home, absolutely. Now they have those things that are there. Um, there were some cool things that happened in the city of Detroit. Um, a bunch of industry came together and supplied um, uh, pads for the, every kid in Detroit, but that was in Detroit. So we're not talking about rural Michigan and all the other areas that, that don't have that kind, didn't have people come together and realize right away, hey, if we're going to continue education, we're going to need to you know, get, you know, help everyone. Um, so that's still a big issue. Uh, and so, yeah, not having those kinds of uh, things available is definitely going to hold our us back.
3: All right. So moving forward into the 2021 school year, and this is sort of classified as an after school program. How, how do you see this all working out?
4: So one of the things that even from the beginning, five years ago, when I first started doing it, I noticed right away that some of the hip teachers were not just using this as an after school program. Because it's so well put together and so easy to implement and there's so many tutorials and Cisco is involved, Facebook, IBM, all those really big names in IT are helping to support this program. What what they're able to do is not just drop it down as an after-school program, which is what it's intended to be, um, but also take all those tutorials and all those resources and use them in the classroom. Um, I was asked by the Michigan Department of Education to sort of map up what CyberPatriot delivers and what the Michigan new cyber uh, security standard is. And if you actually implement CyberPatriot, you're getting about half to three quarters of the way through the Michigan standard, actually completing it. And so the smarter teachers, the ones that were easy and, and those early adopters, quickly noticed that right away and dropped down wonderfully prepared lessons for themselves. And they got a kickstart. And it's a really good place to start. So that's a really nice entryway if you're thinking about Uh, you know, starting to do cybersecurity in your classrooms. It's a really nice, easy way to to grab onto some prepared stuff that's already out there and we know is easy to implement.
3: Okay. So what's the future of uh, K-12 cybersecurity uh, instruction, Uh, you know, in in the light of COVID, which probably until we get a vaccine, we're stuck with for however long, right?
4: Right. So I think it's the thing that's cool about it is it's, uh, it's gaining and it's bright and getting brighter, you know. So, you know, while I get a little frustrated about the digital divide, there's an awful lot of really good things that are happening right now. I sit on um, two committees, two or three committees that our governor has put together to um, work on uh, making sure that um, our classrooms are secure, right? So, number one, right? If we're going to be doing all this virtually and stuff, we want to make sure everybody's safe and everything's secure. Um, they want to make sure that our the curriculum and the things that we're doing are the resources for all of that are available. So we have a standard, but we don't necessarily have a bunches of stuff put together for our teachers to go ahead and deliver that in the classroom, right? And so we've been working on getting a, you know, huge resource, uh, a, a, you know, listing of resources and websites and all kinds of ways for teachers to easily implement this stuff and then go forward. And then the last part is to sort of reward folks for doing that and sort of pull out the stars that are working and, and so that they're a shining example across the state and then they can help you know work with others. It's one of those things that works really, really well in my Suburb Patriot program. Everybody in this industry feels responsible for making a, a, a difference. So I've got tons of industry partners that get, that get involved and become mentors. Our teachers are real excited about it. They're hungry for the information. So the fact that we have these really organized multi-agency comm- uh, committees that are working on this right now really gets me excited that there's a bright future ahead for us. You know, and we can quit, you know, whining about the fact that you know, we're all falling, we're falling behind, you know, and that other, other places are taking us a little bit more seriously and that we're not. I really feel like we're making some really good strides.
3: Let's talk about the current scope of the cybersecurity programs. Uh, Kind of update for the audience and me. How many schools now participate in Michigan?
4: So in Michigan, we went from five years ago. We went from four teams to 182 teams playing. So we went from 20 kids playing and working on this, you know, in their schools to now over a thousand um you know i don't know how it's going to grow this year one of the things that's really cool that people can tell other people that are thinking about it is is it is all virtual right so it's easy to implement um even in the situations if if you have to go to all virtual um it's very inexpensive to run you just have to have be able to have a computer or a laptop and internet connection and um let's see what was the other thing that it was really important to shoot um it's it, it. Oh, there's so many things there that are ready to just download and start using, right? So, that part you can, you know, get you get yourself running. Um, I lost train, I'm so sorry.
3: <laughs> we were talking about uh moving forward and and how many uh, total uh, you know participants you have in the program right now.
4: Oh, right. Oh, and that was the big thing. So, it, one of the things that a lot of my coaches have been reporting back to me is that most of the sports for the high schools and middle schools have been canceled. Um, or they're in some kind of strange holding pattern, right? That they may happen in the spring or they may happen cyber patriot. That's not happening across the board because it is virtual and because it is so easy to maintain. Um, that is something that they're not canceling, right? In fact, in fact, we're the, we, as far as the summer camps too, we were one of the only summer camps that continued over the summer because we were again holding it virtually. And so there right. was no fear of anyone having any problems with exposures. So that that's the piece that's really important is that, you know, it seems to be thriving in a situation where, you know, uh, it, it, others are not, right?
3: And so uh, let's talk about how if schools aren't already involved in this program, how they can get involved.
4: So number one, we have a local, I'm the local contact, right? So there's a support group here locally, which is really important because I don't want anyone to think that they're on their own on this, right? So they can contact us at, at um, uh, www.micyberpatriot.com, and, and I'll help walk them through whatever they need, right? Um, but then there also is the national program, which is at www.uscyberpatriot.org. And that has everything you could possibly have need as far as information. You know ahead of time, year ahead of time, what the schedule looks like. You know, when all the events are going to be happening, you know, all the prices you have, uh, you can even download digital brochures, whatever it is that you need as far as that goes. And they also are, just like I am, I've, uh, over the five years of being one of their centers of excellence, we've learned is they're only a phone call away, an email away. I'm only a phone call away, an email away. And we definitely have this amazing group of industry leaders here in Michigan that are cyber patri- or cybersecurity professionals that have stepped up and are, li- are lending their hand. So you aren't going to be in this alone. You're going to have us here and you're going to have all these mentors out there across the state that are actually doing this for a living. And so they'll be able to bring that real world experience to this lovely hands on learning experience for your students. It's also something that sort of takes them and prepares them for a career. And it also does the gaming and and all that kind of stuff. So if they're getting tired of the whole online school and all that other kind of thing, this is one of those times when they can actually interact with their own students together right cuz they really run the tr- they really run their own teams so you know they they have people who are the pilots and the leaders and the people who you know do the research and all that kind of stuff and they work as this team and it's a really cool thing to watch as that happens there's so much more hip about all this stuff than we are as far as chatting in the chat room i mean you know and and corresponding and sending email links and doing all that kind of stuff while things are happening
3: all right. So we're just about out of time. Tamara Shoemaker, why don't you give those email or I should say the URLs, the domain names again, where people can find out more information.
4: So our, so the local one here is micyberpatriot.com and the, the national one is uscyberpatriot.org.
3: All right. Tamor Shoemaker, uh, who, who day job is at De- University of Detroit Mercy and then does Cyber Program, Cyber Patriot Program for the state as well. Very busy woman. So thanks for being on the show today.
4: Thanks, Mike, for having me.
3: All right. We'll be back
4: shortly. Right
3: now we're going to commercial break and you're watching TV.
1: What do you get at Lawrence Technological University? Everything. Great labs and studios, supportive professors, plus a full campus life, NAIA athletics, and all the software you need to succeed. Be smart. Be more. At LTU, possible is everything.
2: Salaries of Lawrence Tech grads are among the highest of any university in America. Plan a campus visit to meet with counselors, faculty, and coaches. Why wait? Find out more at ltu.edu.
1: As a Lawrence Technological University graduate, you're not only marketable, you're worth more. Yes, more. According to payscale.com, when it comes to graduate salaries, LTU is in America's top 100. Be invaluable. Be more. At LTU, possible is everything.
2: Salaries of Lawrence Tech grads are among the highest of any university in America. Plan a campus visit to meet with counselors, faculty, and coaches. Why wait? Find out more at ltu.edu.
3: All right, we're back. Mike Brennan. Uh, Matt is out today doing his day job with Lawrence Tech, golf outing, shooting photographs, you know, being the journalist. And so uh, I'm, I'm alone. Well, I'm the only host, but we've got some great guests for you. We have calling in. Uh, I'm going to try to pronounce this correctly. And if I don't, you correct me, Iran Bashan, who is the CEO. Of, I'm not sure how it's pronounced. Is it Hygieia? It is, Haijia. Thank you, Mike. Good to be here. And you pronounced it perfectly. All right. Well, good. Nor I have a reputation for mispronouncing names. That's why uh, I try to be as careful as I can. Now, I wrote a story uh, uh, last week about your company and posted it to uh, uh, my website and newsletter. But I thought uh, the fact that you're doing this diabetes treatment uh, and uh, that it, actually that's what it's really focused on. What you're doing is a technology focused on treatment, right? Let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. So
5: we uh, are the first to bring a digital health tool to market that is focused on insulin treatment. So we, we hear a lot today about uh, digital health, but it's important to know that most of the tools that are out there are actually not for treatment treatment in the past was something that uh, only physicians or clinicians did and we have created the first tool that is specifically focused on treatment and it's focused on insulin management so other tools that you have out there are designed to uh, you know improve your behavior, lifestyle modification, make sure that you do what people are asking you to do, give you better knowledge. So maybe like a continuous glucose monitor will always tell you where your sugar is, but will never tell you what to do about it or some efficiency tool that are focused on the doctors. But the reality is that if you have type 2 diabetes, it's a progressive condition. And with time, you become more and more insulin deficient. And while insulin is a treatment, has been around for nearly 100 years, it's not working particularly well. You know, 70% of people in the U.S. that inject insulin still have sugars too high. Their hemoglobin A1C is above 7, and and then a lot of bad things can happen to you. But we know that that can be fixed if only you would have taken the right dose on on insulin. And that's what we are here to address. We have developed a tool that tells you exactly how much insulin you need to inject.
3: And this is uh, FDA certified, I believe, right?
5: Absolutely. We are the first that have been cleared by the FDA to adjust all types of insulin injection, whether you inject once a day, twice a day, or four times a day. We can work with you and we can give you specific guidance for that injection so that it takes the guesswork out of insulin therapy. And if you do that, we know 90% of the people get better very quickly.
3: Give me an example of how it actually works. So you look at the app, and then what happens?
5: So everything starts with uh, checking your glucose. So before your injection, you need to start by measuring your glucose, and you apply a drop of blood, or you have a continuous glucose monitor. It doesn't really matter how you do that. But once you have that glucose number, the question is, what do you do next? And our app will take that glucose reading. And within a couple of clicks would say, oh, I see, it's probably around noontime. Are you about to have your lunch? And if you say, yes, I'm having my lunch, it would tell you, well, today for lunch, I want you to take 12 units of Humalog. So you would take your insulin pen, dial it to 12 units, inject, and uh, that's it. The next time that you take a glucose reading, it accumulates all the data in memory and use artificial intelligence to analyze the glucose, look for patterns in glucose, And tailor your doses for your individual needs.
3: Now, is there an alert mechanism? If uh, I don't have diabetes and I don't know that much about it, so forgive me if I ask stupid questions. But is there an alert mechanism for when your sugars get out of balance and it tells you to take your shot or what?
5: So you would typically inject your insulin on a regular intervice, whether, you know, once a day when you wake up or before you go to bed or with every meal or twice a day at your breakfast and at your dinner. And so you have your routine schedule, but what we actually have created. So while we've developed this app, we are a unique specialty provider within Michigan. So we actually have a clinic. And in our clinic, there are physicians, there are nurses, you know, clinicians that will make sure that you're making the best use out of this technology. So once you approach us or refer to us by your physician, we will schedule a meeting with you like this through Zoom, and we can set you up with the technology and train you on how to use the device. And then every time you use it, because it's an app, all the data goes to the cloud. So every morning or every day, somebody in our clinic would look into your information, and absolutely, there are alerts there. So if something is... uh, out of the normal range, we may get back with you and say, hey, how are you doing? Is everything is okay? It looks like maybe you've missed an injection or your sugars was a little bit low. Do you know how to treat your low sugar? So it's a, it's a fully virtual structured support to make sure that you make the best use out of the technology.
3: Okay. And then I'm looking at your notes here. It's a peer reviewed, researched, validated. Let's talk a little bit about that. Absolutely. So it was interesting.
5: You made a comment previously about the FDA. And uh, as I mentioned, there aren't that many digital health tools in the, the world today that actually do treatment. In the U.S. and in, in outside of ours, there's only two other that I can think of. Uh, so most of those things were historically by done but were done by physicians. Now, the FDA doesn't regulate the practice of medicine. It regulates manufacturing of medical devices. So here we have, uh, in a way, software that practice medicine. So what's what's your predicate? How do you compare it to something? Well, you got to compare it to a physician, but a physician is not a medical device. So it was a very long journey since we started of multiple clinical studies. And over time, we made the FDA more and more comfortable with the technology, what it is doing, how it is doing, why it should be, Uh, cleared for market in the US. And, you know, during this time, we've done five clinical studies, we've published 16 papers in multiple journals, including a year ago, we had a publication in the Lancet, which is perhaps the second best uh, medical journal in the world, second just to the New England Journal of Medicine. And all of that hard work and all of this A body of evidence that is all peer-reviewed, judged by others, looked for, and uh, verified for its accuracy eventually made its way to the FDA, and the FDA got convinced. Seems to be doing something right, and people are getting better. You know, today we have uh, COVID out there, and uh, when you have your high sugars, there are all kinds of risks that are associated with it. Generally, we talk about long-term diabetes complications, But if you have COVID and you're admitted to the hospital with COVID, if your sugars are high, if your hemoglobin A1C is above 8.5 compared to the normal range of 7.0 or below, you're 10 times more likely to die out of COVID. So it's really, really important to get your sugars to the normal range. And if you're using insulin to treat diabetes, all it takes is administering the right dose. And the question is, what is the right dose? And there isn't really an optimal dose. It will constantly change. Study tells us that uh, every week or so you will need to adjust the dose. And that's what we can do for you. That's what our technology can do for you. It will optimize that dose, will be with you every injection. You know, we're in Michigan. In Michigan, there are over 1 million people with diabetes. And over 300,000 use insulin to treat their diabetes. And of those over 200,000 have high sugars. And it's strictly because they're not taking the right amount of, is- of insulin. We know from our program, for a study that we've done here with Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan, 90% of the people will get better within three months, will have better sugars, will lower the risk for COVID. So, you know, if, if you're hearing this, if you're using insulin to treat your diabetes and you're worried about the upcoming fall, uh, you know, when flu comes back, COVID comes back in big numbers, there is something you can do today, and we can help you, and we would love to help you. And if you're a doctor, and if you're referring one of your patients to us, we share all the data back to you. The only thing that we do is insulin management, so we don't replace your primary care physician. We don't replace your endocrinologist if you have one. We work with them. We share all the data with them, so if your uh, doctors like to, they can log into uh, the, the website and see how much insulin you've injected at breakfast or at lunch. It's right at the moment information. All has been peer-reviewed, vetted, and available for anybody that wants to look at the research.
3: So you've made a couple of references to a very long process. How long has the process been? How many years have you been at this?
5: Yeah, so it's interesting because we started out at the University of Michigan in 2008. And initially went to about five years of simply clinical studies until we had our first regulatory approval, and it was at the time to use it in Europe. So in 2013, we've opened our first clinic in Northern Ireland, in Belfast, and we've started treating patients are working with the NHS. And then uh, in October 2016, we've started a study with Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan, and we opened the clinic in Livonia. But it was only last year, last February, that we have fully launched commercially in Michigan. And initially it was limited to a small set of Blue Cross Blue Shield of patients, but as of July one, it's available for everybody. So cumulatively, you know, between the beginning of uh, the time that we started doing it until now, we've uh, served more than 3000 patient years. Our software had prescribed more than 4 million doses of insulin. If you're a physician, if you're doing this 10 times a day, this is like 1500 physician years. So we have quite a bit of experience of using this and quite a bit of happy patients that can talk about what a change this made in their life.
3: Oh, Interesting. Uh, And so uh, it sounds like a lot of money. Does that mean that you have uh, angel investors or venture capitalists behind this or anything of that nature?
5: Yeah, absolutely. So like any other startup companies, we've raised money initially from angels in the Michigan community, later on from some DCs, from family offices, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan invested uh, in the company. And we're actually out there today raising more money because our goal is to bring it to as many people as possible, as soon as possible. And, uh, you know, as much as we'd like to think ourselves as the center of the universe, there's other people in the U.S. outside of Michigan, and we'd like to make sure that this is available to all of them.
3: Sure. Now, to uh, get the app, it doesn't require a doctor prescribing it, right? Anybody could go to the Play Store or, or wherever and, and, and just download the app, or how does that work?
5: So yes and no. You can go to the App Store or the Play Store and download, but it does require a prescription. So it's FDA clearance. It's a prescription-only medical device. Ah. And when you refer yourself to our clinic or when, when your doctor refer you to our clinic, we will prescribe it to you, which really means figuring out, what insulin do you use? How many times a day? What's the starting point? And what extra parameters the doctors want to put in, in there as a safety measures? Uh, once it's been set up for you, then you'll be able to use it. So while you can go and download it from the App Store, it won't start working until you actually have a prescription from a, a Dean of Care Center clinician. And all of this can be done virtually. So we can set you up remotely. Uh, you, know, you can go to our website or you can go to dnavpatient.com. Leave us your information. Check with us. We will send you a kit over the mail. We'll send you a blood collection uh, tool to get your A1C done in a lab through the mail. And we'll schedule a virtual appointment and set you up and prescribe you with. Yeah.
3: All right. I'm 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 sure there's a cost involved, but I imagine most medical plans would cover that cost.
5: Absolutely. So this is covered by most insurance. And like any other time that you see a specialist, there might be some co-pays or co-insurances, but depending on your plan, that could be zero to maybe limited to 30 or 40 bucks.
3: Okay. So why don't you uh, give us uh, that uh, that URL if people want to find out more, how, what website do they go to?
5: The best place to start is dnavpatient.com. That's D-N-A-V patient.com, or they can also go to hygea.com.
3: All right. Iran Bashan, uh, Bashan excuse me uh, from Hygieia thanks for being on the show today and um, we got to go to commercial break we'll be right back shortly and you've been watching TV. thank you Mike for having me today it's You're a pleasure Welcome. thank you
1: Lawrence Technological University graduates earn a degree and a higher starting salary. In fact, when it comes to earning potential, the Brookings Institution ranks LTU fifth among U.S. colleges and universities. Be enriched. Be more. At LTU, possible is everything.
2: Salaries of Lawrence Tech grads are among the highest of any university in America. Plan a campus visit to meet with counselors, faculty, and coaches. Why wait? Find out more at LTU.edu.
1: What do you get at Lawrence Technological University? Everything. Great labs and studios, supportive professors, plus a full campus life, NAIA athletics, and all the software you need to succeed. Be smart. Be more. At LTU, possible is everything.
2: Salaries of Lawrence Tech grads are among the highest of any university in America. Plan a campus visit to meet with counselors, faculty, and coaches. Why wait?
1: Find out more at ltu.edu. Lawrence Technological University graduates earn a degree and a higher starting salary. In fact, when it comes to earning potential, the Brookings Institution ranks LTU fifth among U.S. colleges and universities. Be enriched. Be more. At LTU, possible is everything. Salaries
2: of Lawrence Tech grads are among the highest of any university in America. Plan a campus visit to meet with counselors, faculty, and coaches. Why wait? Find out more at ltu.edu.
1: What do you get at Lawrence Technological University? Everything. Great labs and studios, supportive professors, plus a full campus life, NAIA athletics, and all the software you need to succeed. Be smart. Be more. At LTU, possible is everything.
2: Salaries of Lawrence Tech grads are among the highest of any university in America. Plan a campus visit to meet with counselors, faculty, and coaches. Why wait? Find out more at ltu.edu.
3: Okay, we're back. Now, Matt is out doing his LTU thing. That day job gets in his way all the time. But uh, what are you going to do, right? So he's uh, actually taking photographs at an LTU golf outing. But so me and Fred will go one-on-one here. Uh, Fred Brown, our epidemiologist, infectious disease expert that we try to get on the show every week uh, because this COVID-19 is something new every week, right, Fred?
0: It is. We're learning more every day.
3: <laughs> now, One of the things I sent you last week was I received a study. I can't remember who did it. Uh, looking at 14 different face masks that were available. And I know that's really important. I have to tell you, I bike every morning and I've had all sorts of problems with face masks because once I get up to speed and I'm pedaling very quickly, I, most of them don't work for me. I can't get enough air and I feel like, you know... So this morning I tried a different one. I just tried the basic medical one, not another N95, but your, you know, your basic one that seemed to work the best, but I had bought a couple of different ones with vents in them to let more air in and more CO2 out. Didn't really work for me. Now that's an extreme example, but I wanted to kind of set that up. So what I suppose face masks would vary by what you're actually doing and how you want to use them. Right?
0: Yeah, that's right. You know, there, uh, so there are a few masks, that really block uh, uh, there's an n99 masks that block almost everything that goes through and they can get down to less, less than a micron of uh, of filtration levels uh, and those are for dusty and uh, dusty areas especially and for workers we, uh, in the healthcare setting we usually use the n95 masks and those uh, block uh, down to you know 95 of, percent of, of, of substances that are down to uh, three uh, 0.3 microns now the average size of a of a coronavirus is 1.3 microns. So we're getting uh, rid of a lot of the uh, of the A uh, few of them are going to sneak through, but we'll see from the Duke study that you mentioned uh, that that really is the most effective mask. You don't want to use, well, if you're bicycling and you're away from people, uh, then uh, you could use the N95 mask that has the vent. The issue with the vent, though, is that, and today you see airlines banning them uh, and, uh, uh, and, and, the Duke study especially mentioned that what happens is it actually concentrates your exhalations. And if you are sick, you're going to push all the ex- uh, all of your virus, even more effectively, uh, to uninfected people. Uh, and of course, 40% of us don't even know we have the disease. So there's a huge asymptomatic population out there. So if you're we wearing these, these masks with vents on them, chances are you could be spreading the virus. And so we're trying to prevent that. Now, if you're a worker working in paint, paint air sawing, uh, uh environments um, or, uh, or high-dust environments, they'll, they'll, then they're very effective. And I'd recommend them there, but not 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 in the general uh, uh, ho- hospitals or, or general public settings. The um, You mentioned bicycling. It turns out that we have the biggest problem with masks, um, mask adherence. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, when we're in the gym, only forty-one percent of of people in gyms tend to be using masks, and that's because we're exhaling so hard that uh, we know we, we have a buildup, and, and and it's hard for us to breathe effectively. Sure. When you're doing that, the 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 rule of thumb as a healthcare worker is back off. Uh, in other words, don't breathe so hard that it's hard for you to breathe through your mask instead of taking off your mask. Because uh, when you're breathing that hard, uh, generally, um, we've done studies on, on, on joggers and bikers. You should really be about 20 feet away from those guys who are really exhaling hard, singing, shouting. Uh, the, 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 you're really expelling a lot of air. Uh, so uh, that, that's usually usually the rule of thumb. Our, our best Our best protection is actually distance. Uh, and then we've got the masks to protect us when we come within that six feet radius. But if you can stay further away from people, then you're 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 safe. And I, you know, you probably don't want to wear your mask.
3: Well, here we are in the fall. I live in Ann Arbor, as you know. Well, you live in Ann Arbor. That's right. right? That's and right. So uh, students are going to be coming back now. Apparently, from what I'm reading, is most of the classes will be done online, but still. They're going to be in the dormitories. They're going to be, I don't know if they'll be down by bars and restaurants, but but let's, let's kind of walk through that for a student or somebody that's working around these students or in a service environment, what kind of mask should they be wearing?
0: So uh, I can show you the the Duke study and that's generally the, the, the the, the case for everybody, not just students. Uh, So maybe I should, we should go into that a little bit and talk about the mask, mask effectiveness. Um, so you're right. At University of Michigan, 70% of the classes will be online. And I'm teaching class this year, uh, and I'll be on, online 100%. Usually we get together. We have lots of uh, – we actually have you know, physical get-togethers and experiments and so on that we work, that we run. Uh, and it's, there's a lot of learning that goes on there, but we just can't do it. Uh, so um, uh, 70% will not be uh, in class. Uh, and then the rest of the 30 will either be hybrid uh, or or in uh, carefully spaced, uh, uh, classes, uh, especially the big introductory classes. We're not going to push those at all.
3: Yeah. When I was a freshman, I remember sitting in on some classes that were 500 students in a hall. I don't think we're going to be seeing that, right?
0: Believe it or not, that, that same hall is still in use. And the most you can get in there and still socially distance is 75 people. Really? In a a lecture hall of 500. Yeah. You had a lecture hall of 250 students. Those are the other big lecture hall sizes, 45 students. That's it. So even if we wanted to, we'd have to run classes all day (laughs) or cycle through the number of students you'd have to do. So yeah. uh, So generally um, we're going to have a lot of trouble controlling the virus Uh, going back to school. You know, know, adults are having trouble uh, controlling the virus and believe it or not um, the biggest area of viral of of what we're finding is the biggest um, some of the some of the biggest outbreaks have occurred in family and personal friend uh, get togethers of 10 to hundred people. Sure. Uh, and the reason for that is people let their guard down, you know, go, Oh, I've been with Joe for a while. It's my friend. And, you know, you get close to them uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of times there's a lot of music playing. So you need to get close to here and you're, you're expelling a lot every time you talk. And so, and because, you know, 40% of us are asymptomatic, we don't know we got it, especially the younger students. Uh, and so it's, it's extremely, it's, it, 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 they, 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 we will have an outbreak. there there's pretty much no doubt about it until we have testing that we can do twice a week. Once you can test all the students twice a week, at that point it becomes uh, much safer uh, because you know everybody's uh, you, you know everybody's health status. But until we have that or or an effective vaccine, it's, uh, we're going to have outbreaks and uh, any any school over five thousand. Uh, I think the
3: last on. day or two, I also sent you over another story about this new test that tests the saliva. That's right. Uh, right. So how we're, effective would something like that be?
0: Well, there are a couple of saliva tests uh, that, are, that are interesting. Um, uh, there's a group called Prediction Sciences out of Stanford. Uh, actually, they started at the University of Michigan and they were moved to Stanford. Uh, and they have a, a, viral, a, a viral saliva test that's very accurate, very sensitive, very specific. They can scale it up to billions of tests a day. Wow. Uh, they're doing that now. Uh, it's all it's all solid state, so you don't need any reagents at all, which is sort of neat. So some of these new technologies are really are really uh, are, are really good. The one you're talking about is one out of Yale. Uh, it is still a lab-based test, so it's not a test that you can that everyone can perform, unfortunately, even though you're using saliva, which is easier to collect, obviously. But uh, because it's a lab-based test, what they've done is they, they know they're going to have certain reagents. Our biggest problem with these tests that are occurring in the lab are the reagents and pulling everything together. So as you know, you've got nine different reagents that come together, and they have the swabs coming together, and that has, all, all those have to come together in the right amounts uh, at the right time, half of our supply chain is wasted right now. Half of our capacity is wasted because we can't get everything together in one bo- package to, to be, to be tested. And uh, uh, so what Yale did is they actually developed a whole series of different uh, of different ways of processing their test. Uh, and so they have a multiple different reagents. So if you run out of one, you can use another and so on, and uh, just a slightly different mix. And that's very important. The other thing is, it's uh, the, the total cost of the test is between one dollar and five dollars. So mm-hmm. you have to add in all the all the transport costs, and you know, right now, you know, my guess is that's probably in excess of another five or ten dollars, frankly. But you know, at least you're getting down to a a, a level that you can uh, think about. What we really need, though, is a home test that everybody can do every day, all the time. And uh, when you get, and, and those are are starting to become at least tested and available. There's a laminar flow test that the GSK is trying to roll out with Mammoth, which uses a nice CRISPR technology. Uh and then there's a whole series of of uh, of paper based technologies that are coming out. So there are uh but it's it we're not as fast or, uh, as we should have been on this, unfortunately.
3: Yeah. I went ahead and got my flu vaccine uh, just this week. Uh, and since I'm an older gentleman now, I got the maximum strength one. And my that's arm right. still hurts. So I got it on Saturday and, and my arm still hurts. But uh, I thought I better get in ahead of everybody else and it's going to be getting that. Obviously, sure. it doesn't do much for COVID. But, but if you don't, I mean, the worst case scenario was you have the flu and you have the COVID at the same time. That'd be horrible, right?
0: Uh, yeah, that's that's the scenario. You want to avoid that scenario. <laughs> and the other thing is what, what, when you have a vaccine, and we found this with polio vaccines and, and mumps vaccines, um, that if you have these vaccines, it resets, it recalibrates your immune system. Uh, and the flu and the flu shots also will do that. And so as an older person, what happens is our, our immune system starts to react a little bit slowly and then it overreacts. And that's what causes a lot of the deaths that we're seeing. And so by having a flu shot, Pull uh the the uh sorry the pneumonia shot or the mumps shot, uh you can actually stimulate your, your immune system to respond appropriately uh to the COVID virus, which is really important actually.
3: So would you I mean I had a pneumonia shot several years ago uh uh and then would you recommend that people get booster shots for pneumonia yeah. shots, things like that?
0: Yeah, you can get a booster shot absolutely, and that again just sort of recalibrates your immune system, so it kind of wakes up the the the, the helper T cells and so on, and, and it's it is helpful uh, to have just a, a vaccine generally uh, in, in the space. The other thing that's nice about the flu shot is that if you do come down uh, with the flu, it's not going to be as virulent. Generally, what happens is we about, you know, we, we, our flu shots are about 40 to 60 percent effective. And what happens is we actually reduce the virulence of the virus. So you, you have it for a shorter period of time and it's not quite as, you know, it's not quite as uh, heavy on, on, on your body. Uh, so that you really, especially the older generation, that, that really helps uh, with survival rates if you got both COVID and flu at the same time.
3: Yeah. Okay. So anything, uh, I know vaccine is the, the charm that we're all waiting for. Uh, there's yeah. been a lot of noise about maybe a vaccine by October. What do you think?
0: Never going to happen. Well, I mean, I'm sorry. We have we have two. You can choose one. Uh, one has 10% uh, safety, huge serious adversity, not just a you know a sore arm, but I'm talking about major systemic reaction uh, in China. So you can go to China and have that done. Uh, I think Saudi Arabia has a few of those shots, so you, you can get that done there. Uh, and, of course, you can get the Russian one, which, uh, of Putin's daughter had. We're not sure which one, but uh, had the shot, and she said she had a little pain in the arm like you do right now. Problem with the, uh, that that is we're not it has it's only been up, it didn't actually injected into less than slightly less than hundred people, <laughs> so you know that 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 <laughs> the chances that first of all you've got any you know that we got some immune uh, response and second that it's uh, it's 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 uh, going to be lasting is very low. Basically, what they did is they took a known adenovirus, a known a known uh, virus, uh, and they put in uh, viruses that weren't actually the COVID virus, but related to the COVID virus from the common cold. so we know it's going to be pretty safe, but we don't think it's going to be very effective.
3: So probably next spring at the earliest before we really see something that you think would be effective or not.
0: If we're very, very lucky and very, very fast, and the FDA does some really special things uh, then uh, yeah, early, early, early next year. Uh, I, I think we might be able to get something as, as early as late December Force for very specialized uh, groups of people, uh, and uh, but but for the general population, we're talking about at least spring of uh, 2021, and probably yeah. and with problems, you know, to be something that's really effective and sanitizing and really impacts the disease at a, at a major level, we're probably talking end of 2021 earliest. Yeah, uh, and of course, uh,
3: then the uh, scaling up the manufacturing of the vaccine. I mean. Well, I'm not sure how many people we have in the world. I think it's somewhere around eight billion. Hey, billion. And that would just be one shot. I mean, a probably right. is going to take multiple shots.
0: Right? You need 15 billion. Yeah, most of these have have to be boosted because uh, they have small amounts of. Uh, generally, that they the first time you take the shot it gives you about the same level of antibody level as you as as someone who was severely infected. And that we don't think that's going to protect you long enough and, and, and enough to really uh, give you the kind of protections we need a long term. So then you have to have a booster shot with almost all these shot, uh, all these drugs. So we're talking about double the dosage. The United States has spent $10, $9 billion so far on a vaccine that doesn't exist, just so we're in line to have access to all these vaccines. But when you look at the supply chains, um, the, the biggest area of challenge we've got is we don't have enough glass and we don't have enough stoppers and we don't have enough needles. Uh, to actually do uh, even three or four hundred m- million times two, eight hundred million in the United States uh, doses, right? So, um, you know, right now, uh, not everyone wants to have the uh, the vaccine. Only about half of half people want to want to have the have the vaccine. About thirty percent are holding vaccine. "Let's wait and see." And about fifteen to twenty percent saying "I don't want to have the vaccine at all," which p- puts us pretty much at the level if, if if all the people who are on the on the on the wall right now, on the fence right now move and say, yes, I'm going to have the vaccine. Then we're about uh, at the appropriate level for her- true herd immunity. But that means we've got a lot of convincing and, 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 and shots to, to do. Um, and, uh, the borosilicate production facilities basically you had in order to get your flu vaccine, uh, only have about half the capacity they need to, in order to do the COVID, uh, sh- I'm sorry, about a third of the capacity they need to right now to, to actually fill all the COVID vials. And we've got other things to vaccinate as well. All of the pneumonia shots are coming up and so on. So, um, that, that's actually, it's funny, but the, the issue we've got isn't so much in the, well, we will have a huge, I'm working with a number of companies that are trying to produce uh, their, their different manufacturing environments. And, you know, these, these are brand new kinds of environments, scale-ups quite difficult, um, and, uh, and, the, and the FDA, um, you know, has what they call CMC procedures, or control manu- manufacturing control procedures that have to be very well uh, looked at, evaluated, validated that you have to evaluate the equipment you got to evaluate the process you got to validate the uh, all the technicians you got to validate all the inputs uh, and so that takes time uh, to make sure that we're producing things not at a 30, 30 person scale but at a 800 million level scale you're talking about you know a vast a vast scale uh, size and different scale. When you have those to change in the scale, your cleanouts have to be different. Uh, the way you flow the material through has to be different. Everything has to change. And so I'm helping a couple of companies do that right now. Uh, and I think, you know, I, I'm, I'm pretty heartened by it, uh, but, <laughs> but we have a long way to go.
3: <laughs> well, let, let me ask you, When, when, I, I, at some point, somebody's going to identify a vaccine that really works well. What's yep. the chances then of them Giving sharing that information with all the other vaccine makers out there so we have a world response. I know this is a very competitive environment, and everybody wants to make their big money and big pharma and all that. Is there any likelihood something like that could happen?
0: Um, well, so uh, it's all about what they call intellectual property. And what 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 the what the vaccine manufacturers will do is they they will they will protect uh, and and patent certain certain sequences certain kinds of manufacturing capabilities certain adjuvants uh, certain processes uh, so their system is special. Now, eventually, we can get to a, a space of, of becoming generic. Usually, that happens after 20 years. Uh, of of yeah, and that, at that at that point, I don't know if I'll be, be around in
3: 20 years. <laughs> but hey, maybe.
0: <laughs> at that point, then, then then it's open season, and you can you know go go after it. Yeah. Generally, even even then, it's usually a little bit longer because there are a lot of patents that sort of what they do is they do patent what they call patent thickets, and they start to you know um, uh, create. Patents on top of patents on top of patents. So if you look at Humira, for example, which is a big drug, uh, you know, the original patent of that came off in 2015, and they're going to be patented until 2023, as it turns out, in the United States, because they have manufacturing patents, they've got use case patents, they've got uh, active material patents, so all those different patents come into play to create an overall protection for the people who are developing it. So that's, that's a big, so if you look at the costing, what's interesting is the costing right now that the United States has negotiated, uh, in Europe, they've negotiated $2.50 a test. Uh, our costing is between $4 a test, uh, which is, uh, which is uh, with AstraZeneca and $39, I'm sorry, not test a vaccine, $39 for um, two, uh, for, for the vaccines with Moderna. So you're getting into now you'd have to double that because you're you know getting the booster shot, so you know you're getting into between seventy you know ten dollars and and seventy five dollars a shot um so that's you know that's it's getting expensive and if you have to have these every six months, we're not sure how long it's going to last, maybe every year if we're lucky, maybe every you know even longer if we're even luckier uh then you know it's going to get expensive
3: yeah, well. Uh
0: um, 300 million people. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. multiply it through, and it gets pretty expensive. <laughs> okay. So, so was- I, 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 you want to talk about the Duke study? Let me, let me. I, I put, yeah. I, you know, I've got this. I got the material. If, you, if you're interested, we can talk a little bit about the Duke study, which talks about masks.
3: Yeah, absolutely. We got about 10 minutes left. See if we can cover it in 10 minutes.
0: Oh, okay. We'll, we, we will, we'll, we'll, we'll do it like a movie. All right. <laughs> Let's take a look here. Here's my screen. I don't know if you can see it. All right.
3: Uh, not yet. Now, now I can. Okay.
0: All right. So this is sort of interesting. The reason we want to wear masks is because, uh, and here's the vaccination: pneumonia, polio vaccine. You can see that uh, I was talking about vaccinations and how that helps you. Um, so, and prior uh, that that so that that's a little bit of data there as as well. We talked about earlier, but. The reason that we're worried, the reason we all want to wear masks is because there's so many asymptomatics out there. People who are walking around, your friends, good friends, who absolutely have absolutely no symptoms and they're doing great. And, you know, they play tennis and they're, you know, looking really active and they have no symptoms, but they actually have live virus and they cough and they breathe and they come close and all of a sudden you catch it and you may not be asymptomatic. You may actually have bad symptoms. Uh, And so that's why, you know, you want to have your friend wear the mask. That's why you want to wear the mask. Um, and you can you can see what was interesting is we're starting to see that viral load um, the dose of the virus you get can actually we think affect how bad your symptoms are So if you remember that doctor who died in China he was he was constantly seeing patients he was getting a lot of viral load and he was only 31 years old and he died because he had all this virus in him uh, and the and immune system is just overwhelmed. So you don't want to get into a situation where because you haven't, you know, your friend hasn't worn the mask, you're not wearing the mask, you've got a, you got a big viral load uh, because you'll, you probably will have worse symptoms. Now we don't know that 100% sure it's not a perfect correlation, but we're, we're pretty sure, <laughs> you know, yeah. we're, we're getting, and we're getting sure by the day. So um uh, you can see the surgically masked people had milder cases. People tend to get less sick uh, with, with, on lower doses. And the Argentinian uh, cruise ship, we, we had sort of two cruise ships that were going at the same time. One was this Argentinian cruise ship. Oh, and before that, we had the famous Diamond Princess in Japan. Diamond Princess, that was really early. No one wore masks. And um, you can see that the amount of people coming off the ship only half of them were asymptomatic, which means they did that, that. Half of them had very little symptoms and were pretty in pretty good shape. And Argent, the Argentinian cruise liner that happened a few months later, everyone was wearing a mask, and 81% of those patients were were asymptomatic. So you get almost a you, know, you get that between you know 50% if you don't wear a mask uh, in terms of a chance of getting becoming asymptomatic, 50 50 versus a 20% chance of becoming symptomatic if you get sick and wearing a mask. So that that helps, right? The mask helps you. We think that makes sense.
3: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So here the I have a little bit of, uh, there's a really interesting study about hospital rooms. And, and if you're in a hospital, the mask probably isn't going to, you know, if you're there for a long duration of time and you're breathing a lot of air, uh, the, the mask can help you uh, quite a bit. Um, and the reason you want people to wear masks in the hospital is because you can see that the, here are these two patients They weren't wearing masks and they they had very good air filtration. They had six times removal an hour. We're, We're looking at, you know, even schools have like four times an hour. So this is six times an hour. They had ultraviolet radiation of all the air that went through the system. And they still found all of these viral particles in the air by the one guy who wasn't wearing a mask that was floating in and infecting the guy who did have a mask. He was asymptomatic. And they realized, oh, my gosh, the guy has COVID halfway through because the other guy got sick. And then they started measuring the viral levels in the in the room. So if you're going into a hospital or you're in a nursing home, uh, there are all sorts of reasons you want a private room at this point. Because they won't, if they don't detect the, per, the fact that your roommate has the virus, or all the people who visit the roommate, uh, you know, during the course of a sickness have the virus, you're going to get sick, and you don't want to do that. So, if you can afford it and your insurance covers it, get a private room, even if everyone's wearing a mask.
3: Hmm.
0: So here's the mask. Well, what kind of mask is the question, right?
3: Right.
0: And you can see uh, here is the data, and basically this is the this is from a, a Duke study. Uh, and we had all sorts of original models of this stuff, and we had all sorts of very complicated, uh, you know, numbers and, and complicated uh, uh, um, math that kind of talked about, you know, what, what made a mask effective. It turns out that blockage makes the mask effective. It's all about pore size. It's all about electrophysical properties. So the N95 fitted mask, you, both you are protected and the person who you're uh, who ha- who who you're talking to is protected. That's and that's true with a surgical mask as well. You are protected, and the person you're talking to are, are protected. Once you get into cottons and 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 non-surgical or non-N95 masks, at that point, it protects. Uh, if 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 you do not have, if you're wearing a mask and you do not have COVID, and you're talking to someone who does have COVID. For more, for and that person is less than six feet away from you, and you're talking with them for more than fifteen minutes. You've got a seventy percent chance of getting a dose of COVID. Wow. Yeah, if the guy who has, if the person you're talking to has has COVID and he's wearing a mask, and you do not have COVID, and you do not wear a mask, you only have a twenty percent chance. Right. So keeping the person who you're talking to having a mask on is really important. Both of you guys are wearing a mask. Only one point five percent chance. So that's, that really, that's really where you want to be. Uh, cotton, uh, so polypropylene is a little bit better blocker than cotton. So if you have a choice of wearing a mask uh, and it's got to be the fabric, choose polypropylene and try to layer it threefold thick. Uh, if you're going to wear cotton, threefold, uh, three th- thickness uh, cotton layer of flannel was the best blocker. And uh, one was, of course, the worst blocker. Uh, so it all depends on the thickness and how many blockages you've got you can see the knitted masks didn't do very well, right? What, what they looked at was droplet counts uh, that you were able to inhale through the mask. Uh, and you can see the graph they did, they had laser beam. They breathed through the mask. You could see how much uh, particles, and they had a particle counter, uh, was going through the mask as a result of that breath. Uh, and over over time, you can see how much uh, slowly developed. Um, the. Bandanas are almost worse than nothing. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the people who have the bandanas, it just pu- pushes your, your your breath downward. That's not so effective. My guess, they didn't test it. I'm, I'm disappointed they didn't. My guess is that probably face shields are similar to bandanas. Mm. And so um, I would beware of people who are only wearing a face shield. Certainly stay away from guys who only wearing bandanas. The worst thing you can do is wear a fleece. You know why? 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 it turns out that the fleeces actually aerosol the droplets. Ah. <laughs> so you push it through, and it actually makes the droplets smaller and, 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 and more widespread and in the air longer. So whatever you do, don't wear a fleece because it actually is worse than having nothing. Mm. <laughs> so that, was, that was very fascinating, I thought. So that kind of gives you a sense. N95 is best. Get it if you can. Surgical masks don't but don't wear the one with a, a valve. Surgical masks are, are 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 about as good if you can get them. They use the electrostatic shut stop. Polypropylene, slightly better than but, but cotton, but cotton breathes better. So you want to make kind of there's a trade off there. If you're gonna get cotton three layers thick, don't wear bandanas, don't wear knitteds, don't wear fleeces.
3: All right. Two minutes left. So minutes uh, what can left. we sum up in two minutes?
0: Mask care take care of your mask. It's like underwear. Wear, wash it every day, put it in some bleach every day, uh, and then throw it in, the, in, the hot, in a hot dryer. If you start seeing fraying around the ears, probably not a good mask anymore, especially for N95 and surgical masks. Don't wear it again. When you take off the mask, take it off on the sides. Don't hold the front because it's full of crud. So, you know, then you have to wash your hands after, after you do it. If your mask gets wet, throw it out. It's not going to be useful anymore. It's going to block the pores. And if you have an N95 mask, put it in the sun for three hours. Um, that's, uh, uh, that, that, that's, uh, what, what, what we recommend at this point. And, uh, yeah, so that's, uh, that's some of the stuff on masks.
3: Well, we need to get you to put your slides up on your website. I'm not sure if you're okay. doing
0: it. Yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to. And I'm not doing that. I should do that. I know if you want to, maybe we could just post the, uh, post it on fred, uh, fredbrown.com. If you want to just post a link, why not? Yes, uh, that's,
3: that's the next thing I was going to say. You can sure. find out more information at fredbrown.com. So, uh. Uh, well, we're g- very good. I don't know. Dave, did we scare the heck out of you again or not?
0: So. <laughs> well, <clears throat> we'll see. I, I think we've got him. Uh, I think we've got him queued up for another round tonight with us. Uh, so we'll see how that goes. Oh, tonight, tonight will be scary. I'll, I'll talk a little bit about long-term effects and you'll be shocked. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll, I'll start mixing drinks now. Life will be
3: good. Yes. Yes. Warn your audience. Fred is
1: coming in. So... <laughs> Well, no, oh, this, okay. and this mask care is good information, too, for sure. Oh, I'm
0: mean, happy to show it again if you want me to. Absolutely.
3: Yeah, yeah the, the, I think the mask thing is important because a lot of people are trying, all, like me, I I tried six different masks when I, uh, for biking, and I couldn't find one that really worked that well. So, But anyway, what, uh, another enlightening and scary session with Fred Brown. Thank you, Fred. And, Pleasure. Uh, we, we look forward to having you join us again next week. We hope that Matt will be back from his uh, – duties at LTU and we hope you've enjoyed the show today you've been watching MI Tech TV and we'll be back next Monday